0: Is this thing still on?
1: I think they can hear us a bit better now. Should we keep talking?
0: Of course. Let's say it louder for those in the back. Hi, and welcome to the Green Nurse Podcast, an unfiltered discussion about health and healthcare. My name is Amy Archibald Burley.
1: And my name is Sarah Fung.
0: And we are your podcast hosts.
1: If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, iHeartRadio, or any other podcast platform, don't forget to hit subscribe so you can get updates on new episodes.
0: If you love our podcast and our advocacy work, please go to www.grittynurse.com and click on the Support Us button. This will give you access to exclusive episodes and early releases on a monthly basis.
1: This will help us with the cost of running the podcast, the time and energy to put out awesome and informative episodes, and for that, we thank you and we appreciate you.
0: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. And, you know, this is such a really integral topic. I'm so glad that we have these two guests that are going to come on to talk about their book, Code White. And, you know, I think Sarah and I, we've we've actually gone on other podcasts talking about this um, this is a huge problem. This is a huge problem for healthcare, particularly for nurses. And, you know, Sarah, could you introduce our guest today?
1: Absolutely. This is a topic that I think really should be discussed in nursing school and it should be covered more in the media because nurses need to know what they're getting into before they start working and if they've been on the job for a while for them to know that they're not alone. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. James Brophy and Dr. Margaret Keith, who both have PhDs in environmental health from the University of Stirling in Scotland. As a couple and research partners, they have studied an extensive range of important occupational and environmental health issues. They have published numerous articles in peer-reviewed scientific journals and contributed several book chapters to academic publications. Together, they were awarded the Scientific Award from the Occupational Health Section of the American Public Health Association for the rigor displayed in their groundbreaking occupational breast cancer research. They have just had a book published entitled Code White, Sounding the Alarm on Violence Against Healthcare Workers, which drew heavily on these three important research studies they conducted over the past five years. The first two focused on violence against healthcare staff in the hospital and long-term care settings, and the third on healthcare worker protection during the pandemic. Welcome, Jim and Mark. We're so glad to have you here today.
2: Oh, we're very pleased, and thank you for having us.
1: Maybe you could start by uh, telling us why you decided to write your book and what that process was like.
2: I I have thought about that a great deal, and we have talked about it a great deal. I think Marg and I have been involved in occupational health issues and advocacy for workers for almost four decades. During that time, we knew very little heard very little about violence in the healthcare system. Um, it wasn't until 2015, when we started collaborating with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions, that we first heard how widespread it was. They had a, an occupational health conference for their nurses in 2015, and every single nurse, there was 150 of them there, had been assaulted. Have been physically assaulted, and one of the nurses uh, got quoted in a press release about the conference, saying that this is a problem that needed to be, you know, acknowledged and addressed, and she was fired and when she oh, got wow. back to work in North Bay, Sue uh, McIntyre, and that had a very dramatic effect on the union. So they asked us if we would do a study uh, looking at violence in, in, in hospitals across the province, actually in seven different locations. And we interviewed over 50, some 55, I think some number like that people, mostly in settings, group settings. And then we did twice that number privately, individually, but in, in the official part of the research was in these group sessions. And often after the session was done where we would ask them to talk about their work experience and, and their experience with violence and so forth, and the room they would leave, Mark and I would be sitting by ourselves, you know, getting our papers together. And we often said quietly and said, what did we just hear? What did we just hear? I hesitate to say it this way, but we're almost triggered by it. And why didn't we know about this? You know, our devoted our lives to occupational health and we just hear? That in one of the major employers in in the province, that violence has become so widespread, so pervasive, that it's now normalized to the point of seeing as part of the job, and nobody is right. talking about this. And then as the sessions went on, we realized why nobody was talking about it, because people were afraid, people were intimidated. They all started the sessions with you know about sue mcintyre having been fired now she did get her job back after a long arbitration process two-year arbitration process but everybody knew about that and it created a chilling effect within the union people we often had sessions where people would would say look i just can't participate in this it's too dangerous for me and people would you know because we went through a very elaborate informed consent and so on and so forth so all of that is to say that Marga said this, we, we really feel that our work now is to help unmute the voices of healthcare workers who haven't been allowed to speak, that have been intimidated and, and made to feel have been blamed and have had their, their stories left untold that our job is to kind of bring this to the public, bring this to the larger society so that their voices eventually can be heard. And that's essentially what we're trying to do with the book.
3: The, the title of our first article was Assaulted and Unheard, Violence Against Healthcare Workers. And we were saying afterwards, we really shouldn't have just said assaulted un, and unheard. You know, We should have added blamed and silenced, because <laughs> this is what really came out when we were doing this research. It's extremely widespread. The public doesn't know about it. Researchers don't know about it because um, the healthcare workers are not allowed to talk about it for fear of of being reprimanded or even fired. And of course there's, you know, there are so many things wrong with it, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The fact that that the majority of healthcare workers are women, many of them racialized, they're being silenced, they're being exploited and being silenced. Um, There was a a quote that we had in our book that I want to share. Uh, about the importance of healthcare workers being able to speak publicly and to each other and to their family members and to you know whomever about issues such as violence and fear and discrimination, exploitation and burnout. So we said, unfortunately, the silencing of healthcare workers about violence on the job makes it difficult for them to reach out to anyone other than perhaps some coworkers or union representatives about what they're experiencing. Rebecca Solnit, who wrote a book about the silencing of women as a form of control says, being unable to tell your story is a living death. Violence against women is often against our voices and our stories. Silence is what allowed predators to rampage through the decades unchecked. Having a voice is crucial. It is not all there is to human rights, but it is central to them. So you can consider the history of women's rights and lack of rights is a history of silence and breaking silence. So what we're trying to do is to help the healthcare workers to break the silence. And that's why we have written the book.
0: That is so, so important and such a powerful quote. And I think just even thinking about, you know, ourselves as nurses and understanding kind of our own experience, it's to hear that, you know, everybody in that room, 150 nurses, all of them had some form of abuse. And the fact that the main impetus for them not saying anything is fear of retribution, it almost, it's unbelievable. Like, who is the victim in the situation here? Like, the nurses are the victims, but again, are, are the ones that feel that they can't speak out about this experience. That's so traumatizing. And it almost brings into stark reality what's happening in the pandemic as well, you know, again, uh, a large group that are not being listened to that are being silenced. Again, it's, it's kind of almost history repeating itself, but in a different form, it's, it's actually quite devastating. And, you know, I I wonder, and maybe you have some answers to this too. What, why do you think the violence is against healthcare workers are so prevalent? Do you think it's, because of the silencing? Is it multifactorial? Like what do you think are some of the, th- the reasons you think that this continues to happen and what might be some of the statistics?
2: Let me just say that it was something I just hit hit me, and, and we talked about this every time we did a session and, and all through our analysis of the book. You you cannot help but see the violence against healthcare uh, workers as part of violence against women in our society. 85% of the healthcare workers are women. It's hard to imagine any other work environment that would tolerate such levels of abuse if the majority of the workers were not women. You, you could, the blaming, the shaming, the silencing, the normalization of it. People were put are put on the defensive. What did you do? Mm-hmm. How did you act? Like here's the victim, right? This was happening to us session after session, and so we started. We started researching as we were doing this. We were looking at the at the scientific literature, like what you know, what what are, are the stories, and then so the statistics are pretty. Are, we weren't doing a statistical study; we were doing a qualitative study. We wanted to know the lived experience of people. But the, I have I wrote some of them down just so I would get them right. So among all occupational groups. Healthcare workers bear the highest risk of violence. For example, between 2006 and 2015, there were over 16,000 violent related recorded lost time injuries among Canadian healthcare workers, compared to 7,500 among all other non healthcare occupations. Uh, in terms of violent related injuries, lost time injuries for healthcare workers, with 66%. Uh, increased by 66 percent between 2006 and 2015, which is three times the rate of increase for police and correctional service officers combined. Now, Uh, remember that the, and the the Federal Government Task Force uh, Standing Committee on Health said the same. These numbers are underestimations because The vast majority of injured and assaulted healthcare workers don't report.
0: Right, They're right. intimidated
2: to report. They they feel fear reprisals to report. The Ontario Council of Hospital Unions uh, did a, a survey among three thousand of their nurses and PSWs, and found that sixty eight percent had been assaulted at least once in the last year, but only fifty seven percent had uh, reported it. So these numbers that are striking, are, are unbelievable really. In our healthcare system, this is where this kind of thing is happening, are under really underestimating how serious the problem is.
3: Yeah, so
1: that's really shocking. Uh-huh.
3: Yeah, and 42% had experienced sexual harassment or assault. 26% had lost time due to violence related injuries in the past year. 20% had experienced at least nine assaults in the past year. 83% non-physical violence, such as abusive language, name-calling, racially directed abuse, threatening gestures. You know, when you talk about what what really is behind all the violence, it's it's a really complex issue. So under-reporting means that it's not being addressed because it's just not on the books, right? Even though you see these numbers and they look, Unbelievable, including the compensation numbers, but somehow with all the underreporting, reporting, we just don't have a really good sense of, of how widespread it really is. Uh, there's the silencing, of course, but when you start to drill down, so there are, there are the, you know, sort of the systemic causes, the societal causes. We do have systemic sexism, racism, classism, even. You know, the healthcare workers are there to take care of you or whatever. So, you know, you expect certain things from them if you're a patient who happens to feel entitled or whatever, the family members of a patient, they tend to take things out on the healthcare workers. But we also have seen a huge increase in violence in the last 20 years. And again, it's really hard for us to say exactly how much because of the lack of reporting and the lack of statistics. But we do know that a lot of things have changed in the last 20, 30 years. For one thing, there have been huge cuts to the, to the real number of, of nurses and, and staff available to look after patients. Huge waits now in the ER. You know, I remember when our children were young. You know, if we had to take one of them to the ER, we would expect to go in and get right in. There might be a five-minute wait. Now you can wait 13 hours. We have had that experience personally. Of course, people are angry. They're upset. They lose it, right? And who do they take it out on? The, the usually the nurse the triage nurse or whoever happens to be around um the staffing levels are just completely unmanageable ontario has the lowest number of of beds and staff of all the provinces when you compare us to all the other developed countries we're sitting right at the bottom i think we tie with mexico for the number of of staff and and beds. nurse
2: to patient ratios. ratios.
3: Right, right, right. When yeah. we talk beds, we're really talking staff, right? Because yeah. I mean, I've seen it written that there's lots of furniture. It's not that we don't have the, <laughs> we don't have the staff. So when you don't have enough staff, you have frustrated patients and family members. You also don't have the staff that you might need to to have two or three people go in to handle somebody who's out of control. Um, There are some workplaces and some areas of the hospitals and so on that may be a bit more dangerous than others. For instance, the ER, people are coming in off the street. Drugs are a much bigger problem than they used to be. Um, But we also have, you know, understaffing and wait times. Um, We heard some horrendous stories of things that had taken place in the ER, but also in some of the um, forensic units, for instance. We um, told the story of Diane Paulin who had gone into work in her North Bay hospital. Um, she was given a patient who had a history of violence. In fact, he was there because he had been, uh, they had had to call the police. He was living in a group home. He was in a group home because he had assaulted his family. They assaulted the staff at the group home. The police were called. He assaulted the police. They ended up taking him to this forensic unit. Diane ended up somehow alone in a room with him. He managed to. He was upset because he wasn't able to use the phone, he wanted to use the phone. Anyway, he attacked her. He pinned her up against the door that automatically locked from the inside so that he couldn't get out while well, she couldn't get out. She was backed up against the door. He was coming at her. He got a chair, started pushing, pushing against her. She was screaming for help. People on the other side of the door, other patients, heard and called for help a code white was finally called she was fighting with all her strength managed to push the chair and him away enough that the other staff were able to come in finally got things under control but not before she had suffered a severe concussion serious you know bruising trauma of course ptsd She ultimately ended up losing her teeth. They had, you know, she had been punched in the face so many times. Um, She never was able to work again. I was going to read just a little, a little excerpt again from the book. Um, I was barricaded behind the door with a chair hard against me. He pounded on my head, my face, and on my shoulders. He was yelling and screaming while he punched me. Um, And then... She went on to talk about having gone to the ER, she was given painkillers and after a few hours was sent home, woke up the next morning to find herself covered in bruises, hardly able to walk. We met her 6 years after the incident when she had she was speaking at a conference on violence against healthcare workers. She, you know, at that point felt it was safe to get up and, and speak about her experiences because there was no chance she was ever going back to work. She couldn't. She was just too hurt and too traumatized. So, shaking, her voice quivering, she stood bravely in front of a large group of nurses, PSWs, aides, maintenance staff, and other allied healthcare workers and talked about the attack and about her injuries. She talked about the litany of callous disregard and abuse that came afterwards from her employer and the compensation board. She described how the indifference and even contempt she experienced from her employer and the compensation system in the aftermath of the attack compounded the harm from the original injuries and left her traumatized and ultimately impoverished. The delegates and the two of us were moved to tears. We did interview her a year later and her you know more about how she had been treated by the comp system. Who agreed that okay, she couldn't go back to work in the hospital. She had tried, couldn't do it. So tried to set her up as a customer complaints rep, um, which didn't work out. They had all these angry people coming in complaining about service, and it was, I think it was stores. Um, she wasn't able to do that job. She she fought for the longest time to be able to get compensation. Finally did, but. It home. was such, it lost her home. She, you know, had gone through such trauma. In fact, they tried to use the fact that she had been abused as a child to say, well, that's the cause of your PTSD, not that's the violence. Wow. So, So there's so much more to this than just what happens in the workplace. It's how the whole system treats people when they try to talk about it or when they try to file for compensation. Um, the support system isn't there that is so important. And when you think about it, you know, somebody who is sexually assaulted, right They're they're told they should go to a sexual assault crisis center. There's counseling, very inadequate, all of it. But there's nothing like that for the healthcare workers who are assaulted, often sexually assaulted as well. They're expected to just, you know, get back to the job. We heard a story of someone who was horribly sexually assaulted. She was alone in a shower. Um, with a man who was in his 50s, big and strong, who had mild dementia. He attacked her and had her pinned up against the wall, was penetrating her with his fingers through her, her scrubs. She fought to get away, managed finally to talk to the nurse man to, who was in charge and, and was told, OK, well, luckily you didn't get hurt. You know, Thank goodness you're OK, get back to work. She, she was not OK. She was so traumatized. She was shaking, she was sick. She realized how incredibly close she had come to being raped, as it was. She was
0: viciously
3: right. mm-hmm. assaulted, but it was treated, dismissed as if it was nothing. So, and there was a lot that happened after that as well. But this disregard for the trauma that healthcare workers experience when all this goes on, I think is a very serious problem. There should be ongoing counseling, there should be ongoing debriefing that is positive and supportive, not the kind of debriefing that we heard the nurses went through after an incident when they would report it. Maybe first thing they'd be asked is, okay, what did you do? How did you approach the patient? You know, instantly it, it was on them that they had to have done something wrong. So, you know, there's a lot that needs to be done to prevent violence. There's also a lot that needs to be done to support the healthcare workers.
1: Wow, those are some powerful stories. I mean, like, I can't even imagine going through what these women have gone through. And what you talked about was the lack of support. And I feel like it's just the assault is just the beginning, right? Because you you have to suffer all of these other steps and re-traumatization of trying to explain your story and not feeling validated feeling like you're being blamed actually for what happened. And I think back to what you said about the statistics of violence in healthcare versus police officers. And I think the general public would assume that police officers suffer a greater rate of violence. And even police officers have tools to protect them. They have, you know, they have a gun, they have a bulletproof vest. What do nurses have? We maybe have a security guard, if you're lucky, we don't have any protection. And I think this is really important that we are basically so vulnerable, and with the system the way it is right now, I, I can only imagine that things are going to get worse. You talked a lot about fear and silencing in nursing, and I know in, um, in your book you told of a few stories where PSWs or nurses were assaulted and were told to get back to work. So after suffering assault... They literally have to go back and finish their care on the patient that just assaulted them. Like, I can't imagine how difficult that must be. And I think in any other industry, you would not have to do that. So I I just feel like this this is so shocking. And not only that, but to find people to actually be brave enough to speak and share their stories. I noticed that in your book, most people use their first and last names. How did that work for you? Like, how were you able to find individuals who are willing to step forward and be vulnerable and share their experiences with you.
2: We were collaborating with the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions. And so they were the ones that put out the word that if anyone wanted to participate, that they could come to these sessions we would have these focus groups sessions. But at every one of the sessions, we had people that would say, look, you know what? I really wanted to participate. I really want to help. But the more I think about it, I just don't feel safe doing that. I can't. And this is as I mentioned, you know, we had a very, we had gone through the ethics committee at the University of Windsor and at the University of Sterling in Scotland. We had very strict guidelines about what information we had to, you know, and what protections we had to provide anybody who participated. And, you know, we, we in our studies, we never said what cities we went to, we never said what their facilities were. We didn't use their names. In fact, we were the only ones that really had access to their names, and we destroyed that information once our study was published in the scientific journal. So even with all those guarantees, it gave us a sense of how vulnerable uh, the healthcare workers are. And you were asking, you know, I, I just want to add just, a, if I could, just one point on to what Mark was articulating about the causes of this. We, we have had a 30 40 year history now in Ontario and in Canada of what I think we broadly call neoliberal capitalism this idea that you know the role of the government is to encourage the markets and and to back away from um, regulatory controls and funding of public institutions and so we've had you know decades-long underfunding uh understaffing uh, privatization, I mean, ha- over half the long-term care facilities now are in private hands. Right, uh, we, yeah. we don't even build our hospitals without private you know, partnerships, yep. even though the Auditor General says it's costing us billions of dollars, because this is the role that the government thinks it should be playing in the economy. The consequences of that is we have this completely underfunded, understaffed healthcare system, and an increasingly uh, acute population population that you know has more and more health related issues and less and less supports and so the staff are the first line of the frustration that 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 people are feeling and and then I you know it gets mixed in of course is what we were saying you know the overwhelmingly female uh the gender makeup of the workforce they become immediately targeted um so you know, I, I think that these these systemic causes. We tried to talk about that in the book. We also have a whole list of things that could be done. You know, everything from you know code whites and flagging and security and even the design of the buildings. And these were all the ideas that the personal alarms. Personal alarms. But I mean, one nurse told us that she was at a conference and she went for a coffee, and she was talking to a, a, another delegate who works in the in the in the laundry. And the woman in the laundry was saying uh, that, you know, every time I come on to certain floors, I have to put on a, an alarm. And the, the nurse was saying an alarm. Oh, yeah, they, everybody has to have an alarm, you know, in case there's any violent incidents on there. She said, well, at the hospital I work at, the only thing we can do is scream, you know. Oh so God. you get a sense that there's this lack of, of resources that's very unequal and very, you know, in some places they, they literally don't exist. You know, and in other places, they might have a bit more. So, you know, maybe some of the hospitals in Toronto might have something that, you know, in in Kenora or, you know, Thunder Bay, there's not not a chance, you know.
0: Hearing these things is really difficult, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. I think the first thing we need to call it out as what it is, it is just gender discrimination on the face of it. Um, we can't shy away from the fact that that nursing and and predominantly healthcare, where we're um, working closely with patients, is predominantly female. Is predominantly there is a large um, group that are racialized as well. And we can't forget the we we've seen how those narratives play out when it comes to women's rights and when it comes to women asking for better protections, and and I think that you know people are jumping up and down about I, I don't know if you've heard of this the uh, B uh, sorry Bill C three, which they've been talking about just recently. It's now. Um, why this, why we might need this law to kind of protect healthcare workers. And really, because in the pandemic, we've seen, um, you know, those threats and um, aggressors towards and intimidating behavior towards professionals. But again, that was lobbied heavily by the physician group, which again is, is male dominated as well. And again, it just, it doesn't for me go far enough because really at the end of the day, what it says is the bill is going to fulfill um a liberal promise that was to bring in a new law to tackle rising harassment of healthcare workers. But we're talking about physical violence that is occurring and really employers should be actually encouraging their workers to press charges. Like in that that instance where you had mentioned that nurse was sexually assaulted, she should have, her manager should have been like, yeah, you should press charges against this person, patient or not. I think at the end of the day, and I think this goes with our nursing training, we sometimes forget we we're in this nursing patient relationship where we forget that we're people at the end of the day. We're still human beings that have feelings that have rights, and it doesn't. Working at a hospital and working as a nurse doesn't supersede the right of being a human being and deserving protection. So I think we need to move away from some of these narratives that we we've been taught in nursing school, that we've been taught by our our healthcare workers and other people around us. And we really need to, I, I'm sorry to say, but kind of like stick it to the man. Like, I think we've been hearing stories about outrages at South Lake. And I, I'm almost thinking that, you know, we have a lot of lawyers that listen to our podcast. Maybe there should be a class action lawsuit against a lot of these hospitals that are allowing this this abuse to occur. We need to actually have better systems in place. And I, I'm just wondering from your per, your perspective, what do you think we can do to improve the situation? I mean... I know that, for example, nurses have been told not to call the police or, you know, um, just put it in the internal reporting system and we'll follow up. What are some other things that we can do?
3: There are several levels, right? There are, in, there are things that individuals can do. There are things that the unions can do. Um, there are, you know, there's strength in numbers, of course. And the more people you bring on board, the more likely you are to be influential and safer. Building coalitions, you know, connecting up with some of the coalitions that exist, um, even you know, you know, you're talking about the physicians having been somewhat influential in, in trying to get this legislation to protect healthcare workers. Right? One of the things to say about all of that too is those those threats against healthcare workers around you know pandemic related issues have been very public, unlike what what is happening behind closed doors in the hospital. So it's already out there publicly. One of the big things is we've got to get this issue out in the public. The fact that violence is happening every day behind those doors to healthcare workers, um, it's not visible. It needs to be visible. There's been this, we called it surplus powerlessness. We borrowed that term in the book. You know, once people have been made to feel that they are not powerful or they are even deserving of, the abuse that or the exploitation that they experience, the less likely they are to fight back. Overcoming that is going to be a huge issue. I think it's starting. I honestly think that violence now is more on the tip of people's tongues than it has been. It's we got a long way to go, but I'm just I would like to read another little excerpt from the book of care. One of the first steps towards justice for healthcare workers is to reject the assertion that violence is part of the job or that boys will be boys. These are manipulative lies intended to disempower workers, to make them feel like giving up. There is safety and power in numbers. While collective resistance is key to making systemic and structural changes, we can all, healthcare workers can all, exercise some agency at an individual level. We can choose not to quietly endure the grabbing, sexual comments, and racist insults and threats. Healthcare workers can tell within bounds. A nurse who was interviewed for the O2Qp Voices booklet said she felt a moral obligation to tell the public what's really going on behind the healthcare institution's door. She said, "I'm speaking out now because people are going to get hurt. People are already getting hurt, and it's just going to get worse. It's not going to get any better because they're not listening to anybody about safety issues that we have. Staff should not be getting barricaded in the rooms and so on." So, you know, I, I think it, it's, again, just like the question of why is violence happening, it's complex. How do we fix it? It's complex. It's, it, we need to be working to, to challenge it. We need to be working to prevent violence at so many different levels. But having the public on side, I think would really make a difference. So. Figuring out some way to safely get the word out. And thank you for doing what you're doing with this podcast, because I think this is an important Huge. step in getting that in the word out. I think people do follow you and I and I'm so pleased to be able to talk about this issue.
2: I, I think that you know the health of the healthcare workers is a great barometer of the health of the healthcare system. And Absolutely. If, if workers in the healthcare system are being abused and are vulnerable, like this tells us they are, then it's going to have a dramatic effect on the quality of care that people can get and have. So it's in everybody's interest. I also wanted just to share one story that that's quickly in the book. I'll just say it very quickly, but I thought it was it was very telling for us, especially when we were talking about you know violence against women and and the parallels in the healthcare system was in 2019, Time Magazine designated the person of the year to be the Me Too movement. And the cover of, I don't know if you saw this, but the cover of it um, was pictures of different women in different occupations that had spoken out, that had, you know, had raised all of this, whatever, And, and it brought this to the public and said, you know, drew the line, no more. With all these different faces, there was, I think, maybe six or seven, there was a shoulder. Like, not a face, just a shoulder. And we were thinking, what, what is this? And in the story, the shoulder was the shoulder of a nurse who had spoken out about all this, but was so afraid, was so fearful of reprisal, that she couldn't have her face on the cover of an international magazine, Person of the Year. To me, that said, everything really we needed to know about this. If you don't feel that you're protected in that kind of environment, then it really gives you a sense of what Marg is describing, the sense of powerlessness to, to be heard and respected. And I think it starts really there.
0: That's a really good point, Jim. And you know what? It's it's actually funny that you mentioned it. We actually have a little bit of connections and ties to Time's Up in the States as well. So um, we actually were on um, the Visible Voices podcast and um, Dr. Risa Lewis is actually one of the founders of Time's Up Healthcare. And maybe that's what we need here in Canada. Maybe we should have a chapter of Time's Up Healthcare and in Canada, where we have accountability structures, where, you know, we're holding organizations accountable for this victimization and abuse that happens to healthcare workers. Maybe we need that accountability structure where we're holding people's Absolutely. feet to the fire to say, hey, this is something that's happening. We're not going to let this happen anymore. And we have we have a lot of people standing behind us saying that enough is enough. I think people think when we talk about you know nurses leaving in droves, that they think it's just COVID. COVID is just like the icing on the cake. It has been the abuse, the the silencing, the not being listened to for years and years and years. As and now in now toppled and on top of that with COVID, people are just saying enough is enough.
2: Well, even how those healthcare workers were treated through the pandemic. I mean,
0: oh, it's horrible. Yep. Yeah, yeah
2: the Ontario Council of Hospital Unions and SEIU have been bargaining together with the Ontario Hospital Association. Their bargaining uh, broke off on, get this, to the two issues, violence, to get language wow. and the collective agreements on violence, and to get proper respiratory protection. I mean, along with this defunding and all of that, we've had a complete collapse of our regulatory system. So, you know, one of the things we found in our, our studies was that the health and safety committees weren't meeting. Um, right. There was reported in the Toronto, and we knew this from our study we did on the pandemic and what was going on with, with with workers, but it was confirmed the Toronto Star used freedom of information. There was something like 250 work refusals in the hospitals in the first year or so of the, of the uh, pandemic. Almost all of them are over proper respiratory protection. So for instance, right. mm-hmm. you know, a pregnant cleaner ordered to go into a room of a former COVID patient to clean it, ask for an N95. No, the Ministry of Labor doesn't support her. She's forced to go into that room. We had a nurse that was, that had a horrible story around all of that. Um, did and- Did end
3: up getting COVID. Did Seriously. end
2: up getting COVID.
3: But she had been d- denied proper respiratory equipment. The, the ministry did not uphold one of the workers. Not one. Because- they were following the mandates that were put out by the province, which was still denying that COVID is airborne. And there's still adequate respiratory protection. The other thing to say during the pandemic, the issue of violence against health were, were, increased were really increased um, in various surveys. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's been shown that, that violence has actually increased. And I think this is partly because the, you know, people are incredibly frustrated. They, they weren't able to have family members coming in to help and, which meant that, you know, the, the nurses were, were all they had, and so they were taking everything out on the nurses. Again, frustration, fear, all of those things, whatever the reasons.
2: None of them Health, acceptable, by healthcare the way. Health care
3: workers were subjected to more violence at the same time that they were being denied protection, basic protection. And, you know, we're not talking about uh, a lot of money here. Providing people with, with N95s is not going to break the bank. But what I think is behind it is that it's, it's caving in to the healthcare workers who were saying, you need to protect me. I mean, try to figure that out, right? But it would be so simple to protect them. They could do a lot to protect them, and they're
0: not. They were literally putting N95s under lock and key. Yes. Like, it, like they were narcotics. They were putting them in like bins where nurses could not access them. They would need like a manager approval. This is ludicrous. It is insane. No other profession would be treated the way that nurses were during this pandemic. It's unreal that, you know, they treated us childlike. You can't do this. You don't have the knowledge, skill, and judgment to make this call. We need to put these things away from you guys because we can't trust that you're going to take care of this. It's, It's unbelievable how disrespectful nurses have been treated.
2: You know, normally I don't recommend reading a Royal Commission report unless you're suffering from insomnia or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> in particular case, the SARS Royal Commission is worth a look. That Everything we're describing, the four of us are talking about here tonight was in the SARS experience. What, what happened, you know, in Toronto 2003 with the SARS deal. The recommendations were, you know, that N90, first of all, that the precautionary principle should be applied.
3: Assume it's airborne.
2: Ass- right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Assume it N95s. In fact, N95s were stockpiled in the millions after the Royal Commission, but they went. They never. They never properly monitored it. So when they finally did, they found that all the respirators had re- had expired. Right. The 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 straps on the back. So they got rid of all of them. So when they didn't
3: replace them, they
2: didn't replace them. Cyrus Royal Commission says you must talk. You must build a culture of safety in the hospitals. You must talk to the healthcare workers. Listen to the nurses. Listen to the doctors. Listen to the unions. This, and he specifically tells the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Labor to go and do these things. Like everything that got completely shoved aside in the pandemic, which was, this was supposed to be the roadmap of how you deal with the pandemic, was totally ignored. And, and
3: front and center right. was the precautionary principle. Follow mm-hmm. the
2: Listen to the workers, respect them.
3: This was a novel virus. We didn't really understand it. So you, you treat it as if it is airborne, it is dangerous. You do everything you can to protect people. And yes, that didn't happen.
1: Yeah, I think that it's just, it doesn't make any sense to me either. And I was reading actually a book by Andre Picard this weekend. And basically he said, in Canada, we're really, really great at writing reports but we're not good at acting on them. So we, we put out a lot of great reports and we do these, you know, investigations and we have these great recommendations, but we don't act on them for whatever reason. And you know, SARS was in 2003, so we're 18 years later. This is not something that just happened, you know, a couple years ago. We've had more than ample time to act on it. And just speaking about N95 respirators, at one point in the beginning of the pandemic, a lot of places were allowing hospitals to use expired N95 because it was just the elastic they determined was the part that would expire. It's just crazy. And then the fact that we had heard from healthcare workers earlier in the pandemic that they were reusing N95s, they were reusing surgical masks because they were not being given anything. And I just, I can't believe that this is what it's come to and what we have to put up with if we want to continue working in the field.
2: You have at PSWs using garbage bags. I mean, I mean, how bad is, we we knew that long-term care was going to be a disaster because we had just finished our study on violence. We knew exactly what the conditions were in there. When the very first thing, as the pandemic uh, starts to unfold, Mark and I are saying to each other, oh my God, it's going to be a disaster in long-term care. And how bad does it have to be that it's Canadian, young Canadian soldiers who get put into these long-term care saying, these are worse conditions than they've seen in all the countries that they've been stationed in and blah, blah, blah. Like... It took Canadian soldiers to finally blow the whistle on this. Why? Why wasn't anyone listening to the healthcare workers, that to ONA? To,
3: really, nothing has changed. No, we're still just talking about it. That we need to do more to protect, you know, the the residents and staff in long term care. Nothing's changed. Mm-hmm.
2: You no, know, in fact, if anything, so, they were, they're yeah. they're being exempt from any kind of legal actions. You, you you raised this question: Why is this happening to us? And of course, we get all. We have a nice big pot. We could throw all kinds of stuff into it. I, I think one of the factors is the lack of power um, that healthcare workers in general, nurses, uh, of course, is the largest group of healthcare workers in particular. The lack of power they have uh, over their working conditions and over um, the conditions of their work. So you know you can't strike. Um, your rights for you know under the health and safety laws are are circumscribed. You know, there's all kinds of places where you can't refuse. Um, you know, um, the public expects that you'll do, you know, continue to do th- this work even under horrendous conditions. And you have no vo- way of of challenging that and saying, no, this is not right. This this is, we're not gonna work under these kinds of conditions. And that's what I think you're seeing now, nurses voting with their feet.
3: And you're being they're, they're, kept divided, you know, uh, through fear, right, because you have to be, for whatever reason, your employer seem to hold most of the cards. And, yes. and of course, yeah. to go back again to this issue of, you know, you don't really have public support because the public doesn't really know what's going on. I don't think the public understands how unprotected you are during the pandemic either. So they see, they see the rallies uh, and that sort of thing outside the hospitals.
2: Which are horrendous.
3: But, you know, I... And, and I know the healthcare workers have been speaking out, and there have been there have been rallies of healthcare workers saying we need protection. There have been rallies around the issue of violence and so on. Somehow they just not seem to get the press that the, the well, crowds do that are that are out to. But even if we
2: even if you get the press, and, and there's been a lot of press and stuff when, when we release the studies and so forth. But the political okay. people that are controlling the administrative decisions and the and the purse here. They're, they're not budging.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Look, look at the legislation you, you, you're getting and so on. Yeah, look look at the healthcare, uh, SEIU and, and OCHU, you know, their contract. They can't, you know, they have no way of striking. They have no, you know, withdrawing their labor. So they're locked into a process that's very unfair and unequal. And it breaks off because they want protection against violence and they want proper respiratory protection. I mean, wh- really, when you think about that's what broke off the, the negotiations,
3: I think there is some good news here. I mean, I think we are starting to talk about this. I also think, you know, it's very clear when we're talking about the issue of violence. There's, we've found the cure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, looking at the two thousand or so articles that have already been published around the world on it, and talking to the hundreds of healthcare workers that we've talked to, we have a roadmap. We know exactly what needs to be done to protect healthcare workers from violence, and some of it's going to take some investment. Some of it is going to just take respect for the healthcare workers, listening to the healthcare workers. We know how to protect healthcare workers in the pandemic. That's good news, right? We know how to do but we're not doing it. So, you know, the next big step I think is getting that groundswell of support that you need and, and you know, getting together and saying, all right, you know what? We deserve better than this. and. Getting your allies on Absolutely. side and, you know, it, it can be fixed. It, 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 we just need the will and the influence to get it done.
1: I think this is what Amy and I have been trying to do from the beginning is be the change that we want to see. So we feel that not just violent incidents, but nursing in general, there is so much fear and silencing. So we're taught to advocate for patients and care for patients, but never really ourselves. And so we want nurses to know it's okay to speak up because Amy and I have been doing this for two years. And I remember the first time we did a media interview, we thought the world was going to end. Well, it didn't. And we (laughs) went on to do more. And I think that Just speaking about the power of social media, like that's how you get people on board. And this is how you reach people of influence is having your own platform. And this is also why we decided to create this podcast, because we felt that no one was listening and we just had this idea to try something and see if it would work. Um, So I think that's one way to look at it is just try to go out on your own and share your story that way. If you feel that you're reaching out to people and no one's really responding the way you want them to.
2: I, I, I think what the two of you are, are doing is is amazing. I think it's, it's exactly, you know, the fact that you're risk takers and prepared to speak publicly and encourage other people to speak publicly, like you do not only on your podcast, but in the Toronto Star and in all these other places. Twitter. Twitter, of course.
1: <laughs> and I can tell you at the beginning, I at least was very hesitant to use my last name. I wanted to go by a first name basis. And then I thought, you know what? I need, to, I need to be a real person and, you know, like not just go by a first name like Madonna or whatever. Like I am a person and it's okay because I saw doctors doing it all the time. And I thought, why is it that nurses are always on a first name basis, but doctors never worry about that kind of thing?
3: And in a way, the, the, the more you're out there publicly, the more protection there is as well. So right. an individual just on their own who, you know, decides to... Speak to a single reporter, or whatever um, you know, maybe more at risk than someone who's really out there talking about this. You, you know, you're you're kind of famous, right? When you're, well, <laughs> you
0: are, well, you I don't know, know about that. World. <laughs> you are, so I don't that, know. So that, gives you, that gives you some
3: protection, anyway. Amy, you were going to say something.
0: I was going to say, you know what, I do see that there is a groundswell. I do see that. I mean, if like Sarah was saying, if we look back two years ago, the only nurses that we ever really saw speaking in the media were executives. The fact that there are frontline nurses coming out and telling their stories and feeling comfortable to tell their stories. I feel like Sarah and I have actually been able to to mobilize some action. And I think that more people are going to do it. The more that they see that representation that, you know, those risks that people are saying, or, you know, people saying that they're going to be punished, they're going to see more people like myself and say are doing this work, and nothing happens. But what happens is we may we see action, we see change. And I think the more people get on board and say, hey, you know what, enough's enough. I need to tell my story because that's what Sarah and I do. We're, we're really at the end of the day storytellers and trying to bring other people's stories to the light. And I think the more that they feel that, you know, it's a safe place, we're happy to tell these stories too that I think we'll start to see change. And again, it's not even just about telling your story, but also, you know, we have to lobby the government, we have to get out there, we have to be political, we have to say that enough's enough, we need to know who our local MPPs are, and our MPs. And, and we have to get we have to be a part of that arena as well. I think that's a new space for nurses to navigate but it's a very important space for them to be in and we do need stronger unions. I know there's a new union president coming in and I hope that she's going to do some really some really um difficult work because there's a lot of change that needs we need to have a stronger union in Ontario. And I think that you know nurses have had enough. We're, we're sick of it, and I, I really hope that we see change. And I, I'm yes, absolutely that we will, right? And you
1: know, just in the interest of time, I just wondered, Marg, if and Jim, if we could ask if there are any last things you wanted to touch upon before we wrap up for today.
2: I just want to end by affirming what Amy just said about the union, because I think that is a very important thing. And this, this is, I think it's really important for nurses to recognize that there's a lot of non-nursing healthcare workers that share your vulnerabilities, that not PSWs. I mean, some of the worst sexual assaults and so on we heard were, were from, you know, respiratory therapists and physiotherapists and clerks, ER and cleaners and, and people in dietary. And I think healthcare historically has been a very hierarchical occupation, mostly male physicians at the top and so on, and then, you know, down the road. And I know that nurses have a long history of, you know, fighting for their profession, fighting for their role, fighting for respect. And I I know that that that's a very important thing, but sometimes it may blind, that kind of thing may blind you to the other people that are around you. The old labor slogan that an injury to one is an injury to all really needs to be applied in the healthcare setting. I mean, I think anytime there's an assault in the hospital or in long-term care or any health facility, you know, every healthcare worker needs to see that as an attack on themselves, on them. I think, you you know, very progressive people like both of you and and the people that I'm sure you're working with, you know, keep that in the back of your head, if if you will. But a lot of our studies with not just nurses but with all of these healthcare workers and and the situations that they face is just horrendous, and their voice is really not
0: heard. Hmm. Yeah, an attack on one woman is really an attack. You on know, all we women, need to absolutely. stop treating
3: violence and even protection during the pandemic as a as sort of a you know technical issue to, to or administrative or whatever. It's deeply political, and and I think you know your idea of lobbying the politicians and so on is really important. The best way to do that though, you know, you you need power. They've got all the, they at least think they have all the power right now and control. To get the power, to be able to fight back and to be able to lobby, you do need to do it collectively. And I think, you know, you've talked about all those ways that that you might do that. And I think, you know, we need to look at this not as a scientific or technical issue, but very much as a a political and economic.
2: And a human rights issue.
1: And a human rights issue and a women's issue and so on. Yeah. Jim and Mark, thank you so much for your insight. I have learned so much. I'm sure Amy has as well. For our listeners, if they wanted to find you or buy your book, how can they do that?
2: We have the copy of the book. It's published by Between the Lines. Uh, it's available at your bookstore.
3: Or directly uh, from Between the Lines, even on Amazon. You can find us on Twitter.
0: No worries. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on our show today.
2: We're very thrilled and we think the work you guys are doing is just awesome. It gives us real hope that, you know, that this thing won't go on and on.
1: Thank you so much.